0: Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 15. I'll give you a moment to get there as we continue our journey through this marvelous and challenging book. I would remind you before we read, this book was written a long time ago. I think probably 95 or 96 A.D. Uh, It was written uh, with those Christians in mind at that time. But the beauty of having the Holy Spirit be the primary author of Scripture is that when the Lord wrote it, He wrote it with them in mind and He wrote it with you in mind. So this was crafted for you today uh, to hear in this moment. Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary till the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's uh ask God's blessing upon his word. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would give life and light to our minds. Your word is perfect. The faulty part of this equation is not the Bible, it's it's the reader. So may your spirit work in us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. For A people group that are working so hard to ignore the reality of death, humans are preoccupied with these apocalyptic, catastrophic, world-ending disasters. Okay, maybe not all humans, certainly journalists are. Last week, I've read three separate articles dealing with this same sort of idea—the big one that finally gets us where humanity is wiped off the planet. Maybe creation, the Earth, Mother Earth, ugh, gets chance to have a reboot. Right, first, asking the obvious one, I guess, with the coronaviruses—is this the virus? Is this the one that finally spreads over the globe and does what the black plague couldn't do and takes us all out? Is this the big one? No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Right? It's, it's weirdly enough not actually even that bad of an illness. Uh, certainly feel badly for those that have lost family members to it. But it, in the spectrum of diseases, it's on the mild end. The second one I read, which was uh, so interesting to me, was uh, Upcoming Impending Doom. Uh, The world is going to end, I think it was next year. I I lost track of the date, but it's next year, I think. Uh, An asteroid is coming with a near-miss to Earth and actually might be so close that if the math is a little bit off or something funny happens, I don't know how the math can be off, but whatever, um, that it, it might accidentally nick Earth, and if that happens, it's a world ender. Granted, the the math predicts that it's going to be 10 times further away than the moon is. You know, um, only a million miles or some crazy big number, but uh, it might be the big one. And if it's not this asteroid, eventually it's going to be some asteroid. My favorite was the article uh, that I read where uh, the the scientists were bemoaning the fact that they, they finally realized the world is going to end for sure. Uh, which, again, amused me, uh, but they had discovered that they realized that what's happening is uh, our galaxy in the Milky Way is actually in space, kind of in a traffic jam with another galaxy, and in something like, you know, 100 billion years, they're accidentally going to hit each other, and eventually the black holes will eat each other, and then they will eat all of us. And we need to be concerned because in 100 billion years, the earth is going to disappear, and you need to be afraid. And It makes me chuckle, because I mean, the great irony of it is, we see so many people, and particularly scientists these days, and I, I poke fun at journalists, but they're just too easy on that one, just preoccupied with what it is that's going to kind of end us all. What's the end of the story? What what happens on the, the back end of what's taking place right now? And to me, the thing that's so ironic about it, it is so interesting, is that we have it told to us so clearly in the Bible. And to watch humanity confront every other excuse we can have I mean, we need to panic because the black hole is going to eat this planet a hundred billion years from now. Great. That's that's wonderful. Panic about that? Why? It's so interesting that we work so hard to turn our eyes away as just a a, humanity in general, to turn our eyes away from the story, the truth, that God has given us. Revelation tells the stories we've been looking at it, I would argue most uh, accurately the story of right now. It certainly can, it deals with the end, but the primary focus of the book of Revelation is the right now. And the thing that makes it so challenging is one is that it's the story of right now with some of the end thrown in and all told through pictures and illustrations, which makes it so interesting. The other thing that makes it so intriguing is, as we've said, we, we as Western readers today, we like to read in one straight line. Like we, we like our stories to start at the beginning and, and finish at the end, right? And that's usually when somebody's telling a story and we enjoy it, it's like, just start at the beginning. Just tell me what happened. Go through what happened, um, and then we'll sort it out from there. Well, Revelation's not told that way. In fact, actually, the best way to look at the structure of this book is that it's like links in a chain. Uh, In fact, actually, it's seven links in a chain. John is a magnificent author. He's telling uh, the story of now and the end times uh, in seven cycles that kind of relate and retell and relate and retell. The other thing that makes it so interesting is that as each chain link progresses, each link is bigger and greater and grander than the one before. It's why when you first start reading the book of Revelation it's it's captivating and it's big and it's interesting but as each cycle continues it gets bigger and stranger and grander and wilder and larger. Chapter 15 is the the joining point between two links. Which is actually it makes it a little bit of a difficult chapter to preach because verse 1 And verses 5 through 8 are from the next link. And verses 2 through 4 are from the previous link. The structure is a little bit odd. But as we look at it, it really is, it's kind of the culmination, the ending of the previous section. And the primary focus of the previous section were chapters 12, 13, and 14. And if you remember, chapters 12, 13, and 14 tell the story of the church's relationship with the devil. How does the church interact with the evil one? In the beginning of 12, it describes the story of Christ's arrival, the portrait of the church, a woman giving birth and the great dragon, the devil, wanting to just eat the child up. Instead, God saves the child and takes him to heaven where he's safe. What an interesting description of uh, (laughs) how God preserves his people. He uses death to do that. Whisks them away, uh, whisks Jesus away so that the devil cannot get him. And so what happens? Well, the devil, the great dragon, goes to war against the church. He hates the church. And pursues them to the ends of the earth, pursues them throughout time, pursues them to the best of his ability. In fact, chapter 13 explains how that operates. He uses two primary mechanisms in chapter 13 of a a gigantic sea monster, which is this kind of illustrative portrayal of all of the devil's bravado and aggression and outward militant oppression of the people of God. And an earth monster, an earth beast, which is this beautiful, lovely, lying creature that lies to the people of God's creation, lies to the church, lies to the unbelievers in an attempt to corrupt them and to destroy them and to have them worship the devil rather than the God who made them. Now it would be terrifying, again, thinking through those two portraits of the sea monster that's uh, actively seeking to eat the church and the, the earth monster that's seeking to lie to the church so that she destroys herself from the inside out. And then chapter 14, where we were last week, kind of frames out this beautiful encouragement that Jesus wins. That Jesus wins. And John uses an illustration from the gospel, actually, at the end of it, of this kind of harvest of... Jesus kind of taking the sickle and reaping the grapes of wrath and harvesting mankind to himself. Chapter 15 explains the kind of end picture of this relationship between the church and the devil. What's the conclusion of it? Chapter 16 is really going to work through that. But 15 introduces the picture. We can see it starts, then I saw another sign in heaven, next link in the chain, new illustration, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for in them the wrath of God is finished. So chapter 16 is coming, here's the link introduced. Next we see a portrait though. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And we read this as New Testament Christians and say, well, that's weird. What a bizarre thing. Okay, move on. And we're kind of done with it. But for a Jew reading this, and again, remember, this book is written with more Judaism in it, more Old Testament in it than any other book in the New Testament. For the Jew, this opening portrait in verse 2 would have been a bit staggering. Namely, because the Jews, unlike us, hate the sea. Right? We are like, hey, it's vacation time, where do we want to go? Well, we want to go either to the mountains or we want to go to the beach. A substantial portion of us just long for the beach, particularly with the weather we've had for the last couple of months, right? We're ready for that warm sun and sand. The Jews were not like that. They hated the sea. They hated it for a number of reasons, but one of which was that is where a lot of their invaders came from. When you read the Old Testament, you hear of the sea peoples. Uh, we figured it out in archaeology, it's con- certainly explained in the Old Testament, that uh, they were a very militant people group uh, that had a we would call it a sophisticated navy, and they would invade from the sea very frequently. And we know that, and it happens often, and we also know what Israel's navy was like. Non existent. And then to have a navy. They had no form of defense for those that were coming uh, by the water, so when your people landed, the sea peoples landed, there was nothing to stop them from invading until they were ashore. Further, the Jews hated the sea because of the seas they have to interact with. I mean, we know they're really largely interacting with three bodies of water, the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, and the Mediterranean. All three parts of that are notorious for having crazy and unpredictable weather. The the weather constantly changes. It's the the kind of thing where you look out and it's nice now, but later it's an absolute mess. It was uh, completely unpredictable, reminded of the old joke in Scotland. They say, in Scotland, we have all four seasons just in the same day. That's very much how the water worked in Israel and in that area where it, it could be nice when you go out, but by the time you get your boat all the way out, man, it's a massive storm and you're all in trouble. In fact, it, it actually might challenge us to think a little bit differently of the disciples. And We tend to think of them, most of us, as a little bit of maybe goobers, goofballs, uneducated, and sometimes we kind of laugh at them a little bit for being buffoons because they don't seem to get the picture. And I, I suggest that's probably maybe not the entirely right reading. Uh, we might want to think of them actually a little bit more like firemen. Somebody who maybe doesn't have all of the pedigree of academia, but certainly is filled with more courage than the average guy. I mean, think about where did the disciples spend much of their life? Many of them, they lived it on the sea. A place that no other self-respecting Jew would want to go. Where does a fireman live his life in the fire? A place that any self-respecting Americans like, I don't really want to be there. Thanks, I'll pass. You can handle that. The Jews hated the sea. It was a, a, a thing, a portrait of instability. It was a portrait of danger. It was a portrait of all the things they didn't like. Maybe the, the modern illustration of this today would be is if you go to describe the church in New Orleans and say they were found standing next to a massive hurricane. Really? Really? All the people that I've known from the New Orleans area have a real major issue with hurricanes after Katrina. They tend to not like wind very much. It tends to bother them. Or to think of the the children when you were younger and to say when you were afraid of the dark, it would be like saying, and the entire church was arrayed in victory in the dark, the place that their greatest fears lived. What's being described here is this kind of interesting conundrum of a paradox of God's people being arrayed in victory, but being arrayed in victory in the most spectacularly incongruent location. Why on earth would they be standing next to the sea? I mean, if you even actually look at the context, that's where the sea beast comes from. The sea monster, the great portrait of the devil, the beast that has been eating or attempting to eat the church throughout the generations. Why would they be standing in the place that has belonged to the devil victoriously? What's being presented, obviously, is the victory of the church. These are the victorious dead in Christ. These are the ones who have won. And it's interesting, their victory in Jesus is so great. It's so profound. It's so large. It's so overwhelming that it extends even to the geography of the things that made them afraid. Starts with the sea. Now this sea is an intriguing one. It's a sea of glass that probably likely hints at that it means it was sparkly, it was, shite, it was shiny and bright. Um, and then also that it was mingled with fire. Maybe I'm going to guess on this one. It's either reflecting torchlight or uh, quite possibly, you know, if you've ever seen like gasoline spilled on top of the water and then little fire. It's burning while the water even churns. <laughs> so out of all the seas that you would be standing next to, this is not the one that you want to be next to. And yet, here is the church arrayed in victory. And intriguing, it doesn't stop with that, it's not just a a geographical victory. It's a spiritual victory. How is it described in verse 2? These are the ones who have conquered the beast. They've already destroyed the sea beast. The one who lives in the sea, it's already been defeated. All of the works of the devil, plus its image, that was its tactic to use, the number of its name. And again, remembering, uh, if you grew up, I'll make a special note of it this week. I talked about it last week, but make a special note. If you grew up in parts of the church, uh, sometimes the number of the beast has been kind of weaponized. To say you need to grow up being afraid, maybe you're the one who gets that special chip by accident and you're damned to hell forever and you can't. No, that's not how the number works. If you remember the way we've been looking at this through the book is it's highlighting the heart condition of people. And there are two categories of people: those that belong to God and those that belong to the evil one. These Christians are victorious, they belong to God. They don't, uh, the devil does not have claim to them. They don't belong to him. They don't worship him. In fact, even so much so, they stand beside this sea and they stand in worship. And I love how here at the end, the description of the, kind of the finality of the portrait of the picture of the people of God, it's a portrait of victory over Fear. And we would all say, oh, well, good, great, yay, I like that, victory over fear, I I love that, that's so, yay, yay, good. I like being a Christian, this is what makes me happy. And then we never talk about our fears. We say, oh, good, yes, hey, look, I love that Jesus saves us and he, he saves me from my fear, but then we never talk about our fears. We never deal with our fear. We deal with it intellectually. We deal with it kind of, I would even say sometimes disingenuously, a far off as this something that we all kind of collectively have but I don't struggle with, and I'm sure you don't say you do either. And if this were Sunday school, this is the point where I'd pull out our minuscule whiteboard and uh, go through the list of the things that actually make us afraid. And I don't mean the silly little things that make us afraid, right? The things that kind of make us jump or startle us or maybe give us just that little sense of displeasure. I'm talking about the big, great things. The things that are so fearful, so deep in our soul that we don't even like to acknowledge them at all. The fear of the loss of a child. The fear of dying alone. The fear of being known intimately by a person and then that person saying, because of what I know about you, I don't like you anymore. When I didn't know you, I thought you were okay. But once I knew you, no, I don't like you anymore. Fear of being maimed fear of not being self-reliant of having to have someone else care for us or do things for us i'm talking about the deep fears the fears of maybe being thought as being unvaluable being stupid or ugly It's interesting because I I don't think we engage those fears accurately. We hide from them. We stuff them down. We we push them down into the parts of us that we can't see. It's intriguing that when we get to passages like this, they don't offer us the hope that we would uh, desire it to have. Yay! Hey, Look, God's people are the ones that are victorious over their fear. Yay! That'll happen in the life to come. Because it certainly ain't happening now. I mean, I struggle with fear all of the time, right? How how can this be dealing with the now? This has to be only talking about the later. I love how both categories of fears are here, those earthly, physical fears and those deep-seated, real, spiritual fears. And I would pose this challenge to you. how would you expect to be able to experience this victory now if you're not even willing to own up to the fears? If you spend so much time running from them, from ignoring them, from trying to pretend that they don't exist, that there's no room for growth, There's no room for deliverance. For those that have heard my testimony, this is a major part of how the Lord has worked in my life. Uh, This is mystifying to some, but I was so filled with fear for most of my life. I was so afraid of people. I did not speak in public until I was in college, which nobody believes because I will never shut up. (laughs) You look at me now and I talk all the time, maybe too much, most likely too much. And it's hard to believe. And that's why I say this warning, it's not just from the scriptures, but out of personal experience that uh, one of the ways the Lord's salvation, what it accomplishes is victory over fear. But in order to really understand that victory now, you have to face it. It's the same way that when you want to have victory over sin, you have to deal with the sin. You have to confront it. You have to confess it. You can't just act like it's not there and trust that it's going to be different. And you don't just wake up in the morning and realize you're a world-class marathoner. Wow, that was a great night's sleep. (laughs) I dropped approximately three days off of my marathon time in one night's rest. No, you have to work at it. You put in the energy. You engage it. You confront it. You crucify it and trust in Christ Jesus. You see, that's the great reality that's taking place in the text here is the lamb has so transformed his people. His victory is so overwhelming and profound that they get to stand in the place of defeat and to exercise victory. I was thinking about just kind of different illustrations of what this would look like. And I was thinking, you know what? Actually, this would look like in the middle of the Cold War, for those of of the age that this is your illustration, I'm sorry if I'm missing everybody else, but for those of the age of the Cold War, right at the worst of it, to think about the president standing in the middle of Moscow, you know, at a destroyed building right there in the middle. To stand in the middle of the Kremlin with the building and ruins around them. You would think, man, that, that is one, at the time, was kind of the scariest place on the planet. The thing that represented danger and evil in the most kind of graphic and gripping of ways. And for us to have such profound victory, we would be comfortable with our most important politicians standing in the middle of it. Man, the place of our defeat has suddenly become the place of our victory. That's what's taking place in the text. And the interesting thing for me again is that we are in many ways so trapped by those fears that we go, well, I know it's true, but it has to be true later. They stand in the place of this victory. They have harps in their hands and they begin to sing. And uh, Verses 3 and 4 are uh, just grammatically, unbelievably complicated, but spectacularly beautiful. They sing the song of Moses, who's the servant of God, we know that, and the song of the Lamb. It's the same song, and the impression that we get is that, at least grammatically, that it's the same song, and it's sung by both of these people, not to them. This is the song that Moses was singing, and this is the song that Jesus is singing. And I love that, that even in the way that it's constructed, it's highlighting for the people of God, hey, this song of victory is not an addendum to Christianity, It's not an addendum to the Old Testament. It's not like the Lord was throwing things at the wall to see what stuck and eventually Jesus, and oh, by the way, the cross kind of fixed everything. And well, that was a good enough plan. No, what it's highlighting is this plan of redemption, this plan of salvation was the same plan all along. It was one plan that God was using to exercise His mighty power to accomplish His victory. It's the same song that was sung by Moses. It's the same song that's sung by Jesus. It's the same song that's sung by the saints. And here John is uh, using another illustration where in 14 he was using kind of the the harvester illustration really taken from the Gospels. Here he's using the story of the Red Sea. Where uh, Israel was fleeing from Egypt, God brings them to the Red Sea, he splits it, he sends them through, and he has the sea eat the Egyptians. I like to think about that. How many... (laughs) How many of those Jews that walked through on dry ground, how many of you think had struggles with water after that? How many of you think even though the Lord was in charge, they still had nightmares for the rest of their life? Let I me mean, think about it. For your life, how many of you had tremendously scary experiences where the Lord provided for you, and you still had massive nightmares about it? Again, illustratively, I... Almost wrecked my car in downtown Atlanta when I was in college. I had a Honda Civic. I had all four wheels of my Civic off the ground at the exact same time, twice in the space of a second and a half uh, on a Saturday morning in downtown Atlanta on I 20, doing approximately 75 miles an hour. The Lord preserved me. No accident. Nobody got hit. I didn't hit anybody else. Nobody was harmed. I ended up facing the wrong direction with all of the adrenaline in my body firing all at once. And I struggled to drive for the next six months because it scared me so bad. It's probably the closest I have ever come to needing an adult diaper just out of pure fear, (laughs) right? Absolutely terrifying, and I struggled. I wonder how many of the Jews have this same same sort of experience of having walked through the water, and here now, again, this great opportunity, John and Jesus used to highlight the song of the saints. And this hymn sung in verses 3 and 4 is interestingly, it's called the Song of Moses. Moses didn't write any of it. It's a paraphrase of Psalms and Jeremiah. The first uh, kind of clause there, the first part is a paraphrase of Psalm 111 and Psalm 139. The second part is Psalm 145. The third part is Jeremiah 10 and Psalm 86. The fourth part is Jeremiah 16 and almost a direct quote of Psalm 86. They're taking the song of the Scriptures and retelling it. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Look, you're you're mighty in power. You're mighty in glory. You're beautiful beyond all comparison, filled with majesty. Just and true are your ways. You know what you're doing. You're working out your perfect purposes and you make no mistakes. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who is foolish enough to stand against you? Who is foolish enough to oppose you? Who is foolish enough to reject your name? In fact, even further, you alone are the mighty God. You're alone, holy. All nations, all peoples, all saints, all of the church will be gathered together and will worship you and will worship specifically because your righteous plan is finally been showcased. And I'm going to be honest with you. I suspect this second part does not resonate with us as Christians very often because we do not deal with the first Because we refuse to acknowledge how fearful of a people we are. Because we refuse to acknowledge how afraid of getting hurt we are. Because we refuse to acknowledge the depth of our struggles against sin and our insecurities with each other and our insecurities and how much we feel like we mean anything in this place. Because we hide them and cover over them, praise like this seems far from our lips. Put differently, because we're not seeing God's mighty power put into practice in our lives, we don't have mighty praise. I suspect many of us, instead, what we do is we take those secret sins, we take those secret hurts, we take those secret fears, and we place them close to our heart and we nourish them quietly because it hurts too much to confront them. And interestingly, what happens is they slowly begin to choke out our heart. So that praise like this does not flow from our lips easily. I mean, think about it. There's traditionally kind of four parts to prayer. Praising God, confessing your sins, thanking God, and asking for things, Eh, traditionally. We do moderately well at the asking for things. We do slightly poorly at the thanksgiving. We do mostly poorly at the confession. But that first one... It's really amazing how Christians say we just don't know how to praise God for who He is. And again, I, I've taught you for a dozen years. I've been your Sunday school teacher often for a dozen years. I know it's not because you don't understand who God is. It's not an issue of you don't know His character. It's not an issue if you don't know who He is. I think actually what it is is it's an issue of we don't believe He's worth it because we haven't seen it. We don't have that motivation. We don't have that desire and delight bubbling over in our hearts. We have not experienced His transformative power. And so we don't praise. And again, I would use this as a challenge to you. If you are that person that has those secret fears, please do not let them go unchecked. In your heart. I say this now both as your pastor and as someone who I know that tension. I mean, decades of my life spent laboring underneath that wicked taskmaster. Do not let it go unchecked. It will crowd out your heart, it will stifle your growth, it will drown your praise. The interesting thing, I think probably the main reason why we don't do these things, why we don't wrestle through our fears, why we don't confront them, why we don't bring them to the Lord Jesus, why we don't ask Him to fix all of these issues, uh, I suspect is one of those kind of tyranny of the urgent things. We know that if we bring these things to God, it will hurt us. And it will hurt us, we think, more to bring them to God than it will to be healed by God. And so what ends up happening is we end up being paralyzed by fear. We end up being paralyzed by the idea of pain. We end up being paralyzed by that. I'm just not sure it's worth it sort of reality. And it's interesting. I love how the text kind of goes to deal with that even. Verse five, after this, I look. So after the saints are singing and The sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. That is a uh, complicated grammatical construction. What that's looking at is the temple in heaven is open. Most likely what's even being referenced here is the Ark of the Covenant is opened. Not like Indiana Jones, much worse. Much, much worse. The Ark of the Covenant is opened and most likely what's being hinted at here is the fullness of God's law is being let out upon his enemies. All of the judgment that is contained in the Ten Commandments is let loose. And out of the sanctuary come seven angels with seven plagues. Interestingly, we, we get an insight into what God's holy wrath is like. It's perfect. It's pure. These angels are clothed somewhere in between kings and priests, both conveying to us that God's wrath, He is perfectly, I mean, understand this, He is perfectly hateful and perfectly wrathful in the right ways so that he is in no way sinful, in no way uh, stained, in no way evil, only perfect in his purity in both of these things. But even as it comes out, the bowl of the wrath of God is given. Uh, His glory encompasses the temple, and his wrath is accomplished so perfectly that even it seems like worship stops for a moment. (laughs) His wrath is so terrible that all the comings and goings from heaven just... Everybody take a time out. You need to go sit down and get out of the way with what God's getting ready to do. The end of 15 here presents finality uh, in a way that it's not up for discussion. Parents know that tone of voice when they're dealing with their children where uh, sometimes you'll tell a child to do something and you give a little bit of pushback. You'll let a little give and take. But sometimes, sometimes there's the, oh no, this will happen now and this is not up for negotiation. Sometimes it's, uh, you're going to clean your room and it may be now, it may be in an hour, I get that. Other times it's, you're going to clean your room and it's going to be in about 30 seconds or the world is going to end. That's the tone of voice being taken at the end of 15. It's finality, it's, it's fixed, it's sure, it will happen. And yet it's interesting, we know this intellectually, but it's hard to get it to drift down to our hearts to inform our relationship with God, particularly in light of this whole chapter of of looking at victory over the fears of the people of God. We know he wins. We know we win. We know we're supposed to praise him. We want to praise him. We know he has victory over fear, and yet we don't believe it. We know, we've memorized to Be anxious in nothing. But in everything, prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known before God and the peace that passes all understanding will be given to you. And I would end with this simple challenge. Who are you going to listen to? When it comes time to interact with your fear, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the earth beast? Right. Remember that was that kind of personification of the devil's lies. The one who's lying to you, telling to you that you can't have victory over what's going on on your insides. It's, it hurts too much, it's, it's too real, it's too deep, it's too strong. Are you going to listen to that? Or are you going to listen to the God who says victory is guaranteed? Are you going to listen to the God that says perfect love casts out all fear? And by the way, your love is rotten, but mine is perfect. All you need to do is live in light of the love that he gives. Expose those dark and hidden secrets to the light of his love and let him clean and transform your soul. Some of you, this doesn't make sense, and praise God if that's the truth, but for those of you that do, you know, living underneath fear like this is misery. Again, I know from experience, you can't tell me anything I don't know in that regard. It's misery. And I would plead with you, expose it to the light of Jesus Christ. Let his victory overwhelm you and clean your insides, even now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us, it calls us to live differently. In light of your perfect salvation, we praise you for Jesus. Transform us through him, through your spirit, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.